Hey listeners, welcome to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. This is your host Preeti Padmanabhan, technology executive, investor and board member. Today, we will feature the book Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman and Chris Yeh. We have the pleasure to host Chris Yeh on this podcast. A writer, investor and entrepreneur, Chris has had a ringside seat in the world of startups and scale-ups since 1995. His books help founders, venture capitalists, corporate leaders, policymakers and everyday people better understand how the internet has changed the way we work together to build amazing organizations. Hundreds of companies from garage-dwelling startups to Fortune 50 titans have tapped his knowledge and insights to accelerate and transform their businesses. Welcome Chris to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. Thank you so much Preeti, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about yourself, key highlights from your Silicon Valley journey. Well, I think it's a very typical Silicon Valley journey in which I came here from somewhere else. I grew up in Southern California and came to Silicon Valley for the first time to study as an undergraduate at Stanford. And around that time was the rise of the internet. And right after I graduated, I jumped straight into the world of the internet. I was somewhat foolish and I did so by joining DE Shaw and company out on the East Coast instead of staying in Silicon Valley. But after a couple more years of working at DE Shaw and pioneering internet companies and then going to Harvard Business School, I came back to Silicon Valley for good in the year 2000. I've been here ever since. And I started off as first individual contributor and then an entrepreneur and executive. And then finally, as the circle of life turns, uh, primarily an investor and advisor. Fantastic. We are looking forward to hear more. I read the book Blitzscaling. Uh, I really loved it. Uh, you know, how did Thank you come you. up with the term and why did you choose to write the book? Well, those are two different questions. I'll answer them in turn. So the question of how we came to write the book basically comes down to my friend Reid Hoffman and I were thinking about writing a book and the question is what we were going to write about. And we were thought, thinking about a variety of different ideas, but this one actually came to Reid when he was over in the UK. He was speaking on a panel and people were asking what is the secret of silicon valley and he really didn't like the answers he's heard he thought that they were inaccurate because these answers focused on the fact that there was a risk-taking culture or so many smart people or great venture capitalists in silicon valley he said that's true of almost every part of the world and so as a result he said well we should really figure out what the actual secret of silicon valley is And so we started, set out to do that. And along the way, that's what turned into blitzscaling. Now, the thing about blitzscaling is we realized we wanted to talk about a kind of growth that was really quite intense. Uh, the kind of growth which involved taking risks, that involved inefficiency. And we tried to figure out a word that would accurately encompass that. Because, for example, maybe one of the words that people have used the most before was hypergrowth. Right? And that just describes a state of growth that is, you know, really beyond everything, right? We have growth and then we have super growth and then we finally have hyper growth, which I guess is the ultimate. But it doesn't convey some of those connotations of risk and the fact that this is something that you should only do under certain circumstances. And so somehow, and, and we can't even remember at this point, one of us said, well, what about the term blitzscaling? Now, 
it is a little bit of a challenge because blitzscaling really derives primarily from a term in World War II, Blitzkrieg, which was used to describe the bad guys. And so we were a little worried about that. But after trying a bunch of different terms, we concluded that that was the one that had the greatest resonance. And you end up having to choose the word that is going to have the greatest kind of resonance with the audience. Because the riskiest thing is not that people think that you know, you're a warmonger or something. It's that people don't even bother to listen to you. And so we chose the term blitzscaling, and it's worked out pretty well. Very rarely has it had people protest or say, hey, the historical context is problematic. It is quite catchy. Uh, it certainly makes people wonder and pick up the book. And um, I, I certainly was curious about it uh, when I started reading it. Uh, in your own words, what is blitzscaling, and how does it go against conventional wisdom? Well, what we tell people is that blitzscaling is about prioritizing speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty. And that is very much against conventional wisdom because we typically are told that you should be efficient. And we typically are told that you shouldn't act when you don't know what's going to happen. And the fact is that that is conventional wisdom, which means it's what most people are following. So when you are able to go against that conventional wisdom and you are able to prioritize speed when others are prioritizing efficiency, when you're able to act when other people are cautious because things are uncertain, that means that if you're right about your hypotheses about the world, you're gaining a huge competitive advantage because you're making progress when everyone else is being held back by themselves, by their fears, by everything else. The issue, of course, is that there are good reasons why conventional wisdom is conventional wisdom. And in many cases, conventional wisdom is correct. So you have to be very certain that you're actually in a blitzscaling situation. Now, the way to define a blitzscaling situation is we say that you should do it when there is a winner take most market. That is to say, a market where if you grow to be the market leader, a set of competitive advantages will kick in that will make you the market leader pretty much forever. And if you have an enduring market leadership position, that gives you tremendous opportunity to make a lot of money as well as have a big impact on the world. I loved how you gave so many examples uh, in the book. It really drove the point home. You had a lot of examples, especially from Silicon Valley companies like Facebook, Airbnb, Twitter. Um, and you mentioned earlier that uh, it's not just Silicon Valley, but still people talk about the secret sauce that makes Silicon Valley the hotbed. So I'd love to understand what makes Silicon Valley special and a hotbed for such blitzscaling companies. Well, there are two different things that really matter here. The first is that there is this aggressive attitude, this aggressive strategy. And one of my business partners who was a venture capitalist on the East Coast, the way he put it was, I get sick of finding great companies and funding them and then having the Silicon Valley VCs find another company, give them twice as much money and then blow us out of the water. And the fact is there's a level of aggressiveness, a willingness to try things that is just higher in Silicon Valley. It's a cultural thing. Uh, it also is something that's been a self-reinforcing prophecy because it has been true for so long. Daring greatly has resulted in so many great uh, returns, rewards, adventures that people are far more willing to do it than just anywhere else. Part of that is also because the costs of failure are lower. So if you are a founder in Silicon Valley and you fail, 
that's actually better than just being a conventional employee and never trying. That shows that you're entrepreneurial, shows that you have the willingness to make waves and, and you're a self-starter, you're willing to do things on your own. So as a result, even if you try and fail, which is going to be the outcome for most people, because most startups fail, you're still better off having tried rather than never having tried at all. The second part of it is that Silicon Valley has tremendous human capital when it comes to blitzscaling. One of the things we often tell people is that the limiting factor is not the financial capital, it's usually the human capital. Being able to get enough human capital into your company in terms of great people to actually execute on your vision is one of the hardest things. And because it's been happening for so many decades, nearly a century now, because if you think about Hewlett and Packard getting started during the Great Depression, that was almost 100 years ago. Because of that, there's been 100 years of human capital development in Silicon Valley, which means that you can get executives who can operate at different levels of scale more easily here than just about anywhere else. So ironically, it's not the technology or the money, it's the people. I, I love those two points. One is all the war scars, right? It's like yeah. sort of a pride here to say that I failed like, and, and I learned. And so that's really true in Silicon Valley. And uh, also the fact of the people. Uh, I think the example you gave was very interesting with Twitter versus Tumblr and uh, how Tumblr was not able to attract the right talent being an East Coast company. Uh, but Twitter was able to do that and then blitz scale at the, in the past, right? Yes. And obviously, in the end, uh, you know, I get, ironically enough, both companies are still around today. Twitter now as the property of Elon Musk, but Tumblr as the property of a very different mogul, my friend Matt Mullenweg, who is the creator of WordPress. Uh, he now owns Tumblr. He bought the company very, very inexpensively and is trying to revive it. And so I wish him the best of luck. Sounds good. We'd love to hear examples of companies outside Silicon Valley. I read a few in the book uh, in, in the case of non-technology companies. Would love your example of technology, non-technology companies outside that have blitzscaled. Sure. Well, I mean, in the book, there are many examples from places like China. Uh, there are also, of course, uh, I think that there are some fascinating examples. One that sort of covers multiple things is the rise of Reliance Geo in India, which is actually a service being offered by Reliance, one of the most established and largest and most powerful corporations in India. But it really transformed the notion of internet access by being the first to market with a truly mass market means of accessing the internet. So that's a great example of applying the tenets of blitzscaling as an established company in a market far outside Silicon Valley. One of the interesting things about markets is I feel like there are probably three markets primarily that really can support blitzscaling as a domestic market. One is the United States, of course, but then there's also India and ultimately China. I think these are probably only the three economic groups that are large enough to support this kind of blitzscaling. The other question you asked is what about blitzscaling outside of the high-tech industry? What about just blitzscaling in general? And I think you can see a lot of great examples of that. In the book, we talk about specifically a company called Inditex, which most people know as the parent company of Zara, the fast fashion company, and what they've been able to do there in terms of having a very different approach to the market. They are focused on speed rather than efficiency, but they actually get greater efficiency because of speed, because instead of trying to produce the clothes for the smallest amount per unit of clothing, what they do instead is they try to produce the clothing as quickly as possible. They get it from concept to store in two weeks. And as a result, they don't have the kind of leftover inventory that most other retailers have. 
And so I see all these things happening out there. Uh, it, companies are, are doing remarkable things. And the final example, which was not around when the book happened, but clearly is a brilliant example of, of how these principles really made the world a much better place, is the rapid development of the COVID-19 vaccines. Here in the United States, uh, there was something called Operation Warp Speed. I normally don't say a lot of good things about the Trump administration, but they actually got this one right. They poured money into setting up a bunch of different vaccines to go through trials as quickly as possible and setting up factories to build uh, to manufacture those vaccines before they were even approved so that it would be easier to roll them out once they were finally approved. And if you may remember from the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying, oh, my gosh, you know, it usually the, the, the shortest time it's ever taken to produce a vaccine has been four years. And this is going to be this dreadful disaster we're all going to have to live with. And it was still ultimately a disaster. But that was not the fault of vaccines. The vaccines were developed in record time. Uh, one of my uh, classmates from Harvard Business School is Stéphane Bancel, the CEO of Moderna. And he told us they actually had the vaccine for Moderna designed in less than half an hour after they were able to download the genome from the internet once it had been sequenced. And the only reason it took them, you know, 24 hours to start putting it into production for trials was because he told the scientists to double check. He's like, they're like, oh, no, we got it. He's like, no, no, double check. We are only getting this one shot at this. This is a bet the company, future of the human race kind of thing. Check it again. So they checked it again a couple of times. And ultimately, that's just an amazing story of how this focus on speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty, when the payoff is big enough, is a great strategy. Well, I'm glad they checked because I did get the Moderna vaccine and uh, um, and I appreciate all the examples you gave, uh, Reliance Geo, as well as Zara, as well as the vaccine for COVID. Uh, and what you mentioned about actually making a big human impact, uh, it's really true, right? In fact, uh, when, when we first had uh, this mobile explosion in India and I, I visited some villages and you have all these vegetable sellers who are using mobile to get commerce and payments and they're able to implement Paytm or GPay or things like that, it really makes them more empowered. Uh, so it's amazing that blitzscaling has made such a big impact globally to billions of people. Absolutely. And again, this is one of the things, I mean, again, there is this tendency of people to say, what could go wrong? But so you also have to ask the opposite question, what could go right? And how can we accelerate towards a better future? I loved how very uh, beautifully you had explained the three types of innovation for bit scaling, made it very easy to understand and consume. One was the business model innovation, then the strategy innovation and the management innovation. I'm curious, what is your favorite among the three, if there is, and why? Well, you know, it's hard to pick one. It's like asking to pick your favorite child. But of the ones, I would say the business model innovation is the most interesting one to me. And it's an observation we made when we looked at the history of startups and, and how they had grown and, and ultimately taken over various industries. And the observation was that it's very rare that the next generation of companies dominates by using the same business model. 
business models are always changing. And one of the things that causes companies to ultimately falter is because they become so wedded to their original business model that they are then, you know, taken out by somebody who comes in with a more innovative business model. So if we look at the world of advertising, which is a world where I spend a lot of time and where the internet has really changed things fundamentally. When I started off in my career, you know, advertising, most of the dollars were being spent on television and then print and radio and other things like that. And online advertising was this tiny, tiny sliver as people put these banner ads up and said, okay, well, we'll get like half a cent if a thousand people see it. And at the time, people looked at this and said, wow, you know, it seems like this advertising model may not work for the internet, right? Because even though it worked for television, even though it worked for radio, it doesn't feel like it's working for the internet. Well, it did. It just turned out there were two different forms of advertising that nobody had anticipated. They were completely different from what came before. The first was Google search advertising, which is we have sponsored results that appear amongst the organic results and where it is self-service advertising. Instead of having an advertising agency create a television campaign and buy a range of media buyers to do it, a person at home can sit online, type in a few words and be advertising on Google just like that. So that dramatically changed everything. And then over on the other side of things, it's Facebook and advertisements inside the context of a feed so that as people scroll through things, they're actually experiencing these sponsored elements again in their feed and they're targeted. And these things have also made Facebook incredibly successful. The irony, of course, is in some ways you could argue that the feed is just updating the nature of the original magazine, right? You're leafing through a magazine and then you see this big two-page spread and you stop, you take a look at it. Is it really that different? Well, the main difference is in it being able to totally customize and totally target. And that's why today online advertising dominates the advertising space. Instead of it being a tiny sliver of this overall market, now it's crushed everything else down into a tiny sliver. Sounds great. I think business model innovation certainly has a lot to give um, for people to think through and create new innovative business models. What you mentioned uh, in the business model innovation chapter about being contrarian. You said being contrarian is important to create massively valuable technology. Mm -hmm. In fact, you said that you ask questions in interviews, unpopular viewpoints that the candidate has held in the past. What will be your answer to that question on a contrarian belief you held and how did that impact your life or business? So I have to make sure, of course, that we give credit for contrarian and right to the person who created the idea, which, who is Peter Thiel. Now, Peter, obviously, many people know him as the co-founder of PayPal. Uh, many people know him nowadays as one of the first people to boost Donald Trump for president and a fellow who's funded other U.S. politicians as well. Uh, many of these folks I don't really agree with, but he is still a very smart guy and you can still learn from him. And he said that it is very important to ask people in a job interview, what is something you believe that most other people don't? Because the idea is if you have uh, something that is contrarian and right, then you are able to make huge progress forward, right? You're able to act on that contrarian belief because everyone else is afraid to go there. And there are so many great examples of this. Uh, there's a specific uh, sub example of this. There's a famous saying by, I can't remember which Rothschild, but he said, you know, uh, the best time to buy equities is when there's blood in the streets. Basically, you have to have you have to be fearful when other people are uh, excited and excited when other people are fearful. So 
in my own career, this has played out a, a couple of different times. One of them was one of the companies that actually helped get off the ground, which is Ustream, a live video pioneer. And at the time, there were a lot of people who said, you know, conventional wisdom, live video is not going to work. The cost of doing live streaming video is so much higher than doing recorded video a la YouTube. It's too hard to gather the audience together. And these are all true, but only if you're just looking at the startup issues, the cold start problems, Andrew Chen has termed it. But in fact, if you are able to overcome those cold start issues, then it becomes a huge competitive advantage because people will want to go where the greatest audience is and the audience want to go where the greatest amount of programming is. And because it's difficult to coordinate, if you've reached scale and your competitors have not, it's actually a great thing to be doing live streaming entertainment. And so we launched Ustream back in 2007 and grew it very rapidly and ultimately sold it to IBM for $130 million. And it was by saying, well, everyone believes this is impossible, but that's not true. In fact, it is possible. And in fact, Moore's law and the continuing decline of the cost of bandwidth and software is going to make this actually a big business someday, which it absolutely is. In many ways, live streaming on things like Twitch is now one of the centerpieces of the creator economy. That's a great example, uh, certainly from your background itself, that helped you succeed by having a contrarian view. Uh, we are now in a downturn economy, as we all know. How do companies still benefit from that scaling? Well, one of the things that you've heard me say a couple of times, it's all about being able to move faster than the competition. And one of the easy ways to move faster than the competition is when the competition isn't moving at all. When there's a downturn, many people are paralyzed. And we've seen this many times. Uh, anytime there's a big change, it's difficult for people to adjust. And so this is actually a huge opportunity. And we saw this in the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, things changed suddenly. But many people clung to the old ways. And the people who were able to leave those old ways behind and embrace the new and say, well, the rules have changed. What are the new rules of this game? How do I win? Or the ones who did incredibly well. If you at the very beginning said, you know what, I'm going to invest in Zoom or I'm going to invest in, in some of these technologies that are going to be much more valuable because of uh, the fact that people are going to be shut in for a while, maybe e-commerce, then you could have made a lot of money. But at the same time, you had to also recognize, hey, this may not necessarily last forever. This shift to an online world may only last as long as people don't have vaccines that allow them to feel like they can move around relatively safely. In fact, we've seen a round trip for some things like Zoom and some things in the e-commerce space specifically because once people got the opportunity to actually go out and physically buy things again, they were willing to do so. Or once people uh, were able to see each other face to face, they didn't want to Zoom as much. So being able to really understand you know, when things are changing rapidly is really critical. Now, in this bear market, what has changed? Well, what has changed is it's harder to come by money. Uh, there, It is harder to come by the labor markets have tightened up. There are fewer jobs available, although ironically enough, more broadly in the economy, there are still plenty of jobs available. Ironically enough, the, uh, the reduction in jobs or layoffs are highly concentrated right now in the tech sector versus the overall sector. There may still be some spillover, we'll see, right? We saw this happen again in the dot-com bust where during the dot-com bust, certainly there was effects on the economy as a whole, but it struck the technology sector much more strongly. So how do you succeed during this time? Well, while everyone else is hunkering down and just, just saying, okay, I'm just not gonna do anything. I'm just gonna hope that the problem goes away. You can actually take a look around and say, well, hold on, what is easier now than it was before? 
And if you build your own model for what's going to happen, if you think through the consequences and you say, well, here's something I believe that few other people believe, then maybe that's a perfect opportunity to go ahead and build your business because now all of a sudden advertising is cheaper, hiring is cheaper. So many things are cheaper now than they were before. But it depends on your having, you know, not just recklessly saying I'm going to grow when everyone else is shrinking, but having a thesis behind why this is the right time for you to grow. Uh, that's a great segue to my next question. What are some technology and business opportunities you see for blitzscaling in 2023 and why? Well, this is very much conventional wisdom and this cannot, I cannot call this uh, any kind of contrarian point of view. But clearly, everyone is captivated by the notion of AI, thanks to things like ChatGPT, MidJourney, Dolly 2, and so on and so forth. Uh, I do think that we are at the very beginning of something that's going to be a big revolution. We haven't really figured out how to use it yet. Everything we've done so far with it is pretty much a toy and just people playing around. And it takes a while for these things to shake out. When we first saw the Internet emerge, how long did it take? before Google emerged and Google's self-service advertising emerged. I mean, that didn't happen for five, six years. So it could take a while, right? This is just the very beginning process. But I do think that there is a tremendous amount of stuff going on here. As somebody who is an, a writer, an author, I look at this and I say, you know, I cannot imagine a world where in 10 years, the majority of authors are not using some sort of AI to help them in their process. And yet, as I look around, you know, most authors are like, oh, well, you know, this is new technology, it's untested, it's dangerous. I'm like, no, no, you better get on board and start embracing this. This is the opportunity to actually say the world has changed. And as a result, I'm going to change with it rather than resist it. AI is the way to go, certainly for 2023. Lots of new startups in that area, too. Chris, it has been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Any final insights for our audience? So I think a final insight for the audience, this is something that I tell to a lot of audiences everywhere, is it's very easy when we're talking about blitz scaling and growing companies to be completely focused on this notion of how do we create economic value. But I will point out that Adam Smith, who was the author of The Wealth of Nations and described the power of capitalism, he was also the author of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And he did not believe that money was the be all and end all. Of course, we should go out there and create economic value. And of course, I will tell everyone, you know what? It generally is a lot better to be rich than to be poor. But the more important thing is to find something that's going to make you happy. So to find a life that you can lead where the things you do on a daily basis are the things that you enjoy, that give you energy, that bring you into contact with people that you enjoy spending time with. And in and amongst all these other things, I always tell people, don't forget about the fact that life is short, things are uncertain, live a life that makes you happy. That's the most important thing of all. Great way to finish the podcast and happiness is certainly the most important thing. Uh, thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Listeners, check out the book, Blitz Scaling, and thank you for tuning in today. Thank you so much for having me. And if you are curious about any of the other things I'm working on, you can always go visit chrisye.com, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. And you'll find the coordinates for all my various social media accounts and the like.